the Labrador Energy podcast, guys. Alrighty, so I've got a pretty interesting guest on tonight, uh, today. I've got Brenda from the US. Uh, Brenda again reached out to me via, used her Labrador Energy to find me <laughs> through Airbnb and pretty interesting story. Uh, so I, I've kind of given Brenda a bit of uh, information on myself uh, prior to starting the recording. Uh, so shall we, we're not going to repeat the whole, hi guys, my name is Dragish, I'm a comedian. <laughs> the whole kind of uh, speech again. So uh, I'd like to first uh, maybe ask Brenda, first of all, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Uh, and maybe you can kind of give us a quick introduction on your background. Sure. Um, I just moved to Berlin in February of this year from the States. And uh, yeah, I'm an opera singer and a fundraiser. An opera singer? Yeah. I gotta say, this is the first time I've ever met an opera singer. Really? Yeah, there's not a lot of them running around. There are, though. Really? We're everywhere. Really? Especially I have, in Germany. I, have, I haven't had the chance. I mean, that's, that's fascinating. Germany has the most opera houses of any country in the entire world. Really? Yes. And Berlin has three government-subsidized government opera. opera companies. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah, they're everywhere. That's awesome. Yeah, okay. that's why I moved here. Perfect. Okay, <laughs> and, then, and you moved here from the U.S., yeah? Yeah. So maybe you give a bit of background on yourself and how you kind of you know ended up doing opera. Sure. So, um, wow. Okay, so I'm an army brat. My dad was in the military, and we traveled around everywhere, so I got to experience lots of different things. I think probably more than the average person. Mm -hmm. And um, actually, when I was in... I don't know, middle school, an opera singer came to my sixth grade class and sang, and that's sort of when I fell in love with classical music. And um, even though I'd fallen in love with it, I still wasn't trying to be a musician for mm -hmm. real. Um, so I went to school for music ed, thinking that I could like help the future musicians. Um, but while I was in school, everyone was like, it's so stupid for you to be a teacher, you should be a singer. And so I started singing more, and then I... Same. <laughs> okay, awesome. And then yeah. when, you, when you say like you were uh, in middle school, was this in the U.S.? Or were you... I was, yes, I was in the U.S. I was in Indonesia. Okay, okay, yeah. awesome. So basically opera singer, was it like a kind of like a bring your opera singer to school? Maybe? You know, I think she was a colleague of my, my choir teachers and um, yeah, they just, she just came in. But you know, in the States, I don't know if it's like that here, but in the States, a lot of opera companies have programs that take opera to schools to introduce opera to um, young people, students at an early age. Okay. Um, that's not what that was. They, they, that really just started in the last couple of years. I'm too old. Mm -hmm. um, so I think mine was just my teacher's friend came. Okay. Yeah, we don't necessarily have those kind of. I mean, at least we didn't have them when I was like growing up in Romania. So I think it's you know when you talk about like the arts and you know especially classical arts and other form of art forms, you don't get as much exposure, I would say. But it's interesting that you guys had that uh, opportunity. And then how did things develop? You're like. Yeah, and so apparently I'm good, and uh, I was able to get work right out of college. I actually didn't finish college. Um, I didn't finish college at that time. Mm -hmm. I was in music for two years, basically ran out of money, so I had to leave. Mm -hmm. And um, my voice teacher at the time made a phone call to her colleague, um, at the, who was the executive director at Orlando Opera. And she just was like, hey, you need to listen to this girl, she's really good. I went and had an audition and he hired me. Okay. Then. And so I sang with that company for a couple of years, and in that time, other people heard me, and so I just, I got work, and I never, Aside from that very initial audition, I never auditioned, I never 
stuff. And so I'm just like, oh, singing is amazing. I, this is just what I'm going to do with my life. Um, but that experience was incredibly unique. That is mm. not how it usually goes. And I had done a show in Cincinnati, which is um, Cincinnati, Ohio, which is, I don't know, it's about an 18-hour drive from Florida. And uh, I had great experience at that company. I found a great teacher, and so I decided I would move to Cincinnati. That's when I realized that my experience was really unique and that I actually had to audition and that you don't get paid very well and all of that. And so I was like, well, this shit is for the birds. Like, I don't want to be poor. How many years was this? It was about, so it was four years in Florida and then another year full-time singing in Cincinnati. Mm-hmm. Well, full-time, I put in air quotes. Um, and then the second year in Cincinnati, I got a radio job and it was horrible. And so after that, I moved to Chicago, mm-hmm. which is a much bigger city, mm-hmm. lots more music, um, and just to figure out what my other talents were, because mm-hmm. I'm like, I'm not going to be a singer, I have no idea what I'm going to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when I got a job in fundraising, mm-hmm. and so I started fundraising, and in Chicago, there's a huge music scene, so I was still singing on the side, mm-hmm. but it was very much on the side, because mm-hmm. I always had a big job. Like, I, I started off in a tiny job, but then very quickly to big jobs after big jobs and mm-hmm. so I just worked so much and by the end so 10 years later um, I was at a job that I thought was going to be the most amazing job of mm-hmm. my career um, at the Atlanta Symphony or- Orchestra so I was in music but I was fundraising mm-hmm. and uh, it was so rewarding in some ways and so incredibly Heart-stealing, soul-sucking <laughs> in other words. Right, right, right. Um, that I just, I came to the decision, like, if I don't sing, I'm going to go insane. And so I literally, I sold my house in Chicago. Um, I was living in Atlanta, but I still had my house. So I sold my house in Chicago, um, gave my car back to the place, and I packed up and moved to Berlin. And so here I am. That's that's quite, yeah, it's sniffing around. Yeah. I know. Like, that's, crazy story. That's pretty insane. I mean, it's, it's, it's awesome to see that, right? Because, again, I, the, um, for me, like, the background was similar. You know, I was working, like, with the tech, and then, like, again, mm-hmm. I, I was doing comedy on the side, and I was like, well, uh, you know, the soul is starving. Yeah, uh, yeah. See if we can make something happen. And I think now is, like, the best time in history to kind of take these risks, yeah. right? Because you have so many more opportunities to get exposure, right? Yeah. But, but let's, uh, first of all, congratulations. Oh, thanks. On, on the baby. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, you know, it's very courageous. Uh, and I wanted to kind of kind of start you know, unpacking some bit of the stuff. You said like you know you found work, like hey, because again a lot of people, if a lot of people are like me, they wouldn't know exactly what that means. So when you say you found work as an opera singer, like how does the day look like for an opera singer? Oh, um, so depending on, yeah, it sort of depends. But like in a time right now where I'm in a new place, I don't know lots of people, I haven't done any auditions. My day, I get up, I learn. I have a German thing that I'm study things, mm-hmm. I'm learning the language, um, I go practice for an hour or two, and then I study mm-hmm. for an hour or two, and then I work out. Mm-hmm. And I might go have coffee with a new colleague, mm-hmm. with a director, or a coach, or something like that. Um, and I, there are several platforms um, that sort of list the different auditions that are coming up and stuff like that, and so I'll, I might go in there and see if there's something that I want to put my, you know, right. hat in the ring for. Um, so that's one, that's sort of 
we have nothing really on the calendar kind of day. So that's what I wanted to ask because I want I'm taking a couple of notes as well. Uh, what I wanted to so, so in this situation when because obviously you mentioned you practice mm -hmm. one hour is that every day? Yes. Okay, and then how, what does the practice entail? So um, I for me right now I'm learning a new technique with my old teacher who's in Rome and uh, so he's in Rome. She's in Rome. Yeah. She's in Rome. Okay. Mm -hmm. So how do yeah. you communicate with her? Um, so I go there every, like I'll be there, I'll be leaving tomorrow for Rome, so I'll be there for about four days, um, every couple of weeks I do that, well, let's say every six weeks I do that, and in between I either talk to her on the phone or Skype with her. Um, so the first ten minutes is really just like a waking up of the body and, um, just reminding my body <laughs> what it's supposed to do when I'm making intense sound, and then I literally sing through the rep that I studied the day before. Um, so when you're studying, you might just be like putting the notes in your head at the piano, but you're also putting the words in your mouth. And so the practice mm -hmm. is when you put everything together, right. the notes and the words and the intent down all together. So you have a piano as well that you kind of play the piano or? I play the, no, I play the piano enough to like teach a lesson mm -hmm. or to get by. I might play the piano better than the average person, mm -hmm. but I am not a pianist. Right. So how does that work with the neighbors? Like, because I'm assuming the sound can be quite. Oh. Because <laughs> you can see again, you only practice because you know, if you're practicing, uh, let's say the guitar, you probably need to do it during the day. So maybe you can right. run down the sound. Right. But as an opera singer, how do you practice? Do you practice at home? Do you go to the studio? So I practice mostly at a studio. Okay. Um, when I first moved in, my upstairs neighbor came down and and complained. Um, now, however, I know that the law is on my side because when you're a full-time musician, you actually have the right to mm -hmm. practice for two hours a day between the hours of 9 a.m. and 1 p.m. and 3 p.m. and 9 p.m. Mm -hmm. um, so I know that the law is on my side, but I also don't want to have crazy neighbors. Right. So I practice at home when I have to, but yeah. otherwise I go to a studio that's nearby. Okay, pretty intense because so far it sounds like, you know, you, I'm assuming you have to pay for the studio. You have yeah, to it's expensive. Pay for the voice coach. is a lot yeah. of, you know, it's, it's a... Expensive art form, right? Yes, absolutely. And then you know, I just want coaching to, on top of that. I that's what I want to yeah. ask, like, cause like you know, I don't have a comedy coach, you know. Yeah. Like I watch a couple of guys on YouTube playing dick jokes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a little different. Yeah, exactly. I'm like, all right, that's what well, that's well, that's an interesting spin. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's interesting to see, cause I, I mean, you know, mentoring and like coaching is important in any yeah. profession, right? So how did you? Cause again, your voice teacher is in Rome. Yeah, well, it's interesting. So I, she has a student who um, teaches in Chicago. Mm -hmm. So I met her when I was in Chicago and worked with her for a couple of years, like two years maybe. And I even worked with her after I moved to Atlanta. Um, but my boy, my current voice teacher in Rome, teaches at a satellite um, school that has it's Loyola University, so they have a Rome campus. Mm -hmm. So she teaches at the Rome campus, but sometimes she'll have to go to Chicago to the main campus. And so this past year, September, she had to be in Chicago for whatever reason, and so I flew to Chicago mm -hmm. to meet her. Um, and she was really the catalyst for all of this. I was already feeling starved, but when I had that first lesson with her last September, um, not even a year ago, at the end of it, she took me by my face in her hand. She put my face in her hands, and she was just like, I know that you're a grown woman and you have to pay your bills, mm -hmm. but you have to figure out a way to do this because your soul is crying to me. Right. And I was like, holy shit, lady. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, a couple weeks later, I was like, she was so right, and if I don't do this now,
now because I'm about to be 38. Right, right, right. And so it's just like with this career, it's all about youth and all of that. Mm-hmm. And like for most people, if you don't have something going on by 40, it's just like it's probably not going to happen. Um, I think that I have a unique opportunity, but um, I was like, I don't want to be 65 mm-hmm. wondering like with great credit and a big house and a nice car, right. but then sad. Dead inside. <laughs> exactly. So I said, let me just do this. But anyway, to your answer your question, I met her through and my husband. She's American, Italian, or she's American, but she's been in Italy for fifty two years. Right, I mean, she's seventy four. So, oh, wow. okay. and she still sings beautifully and professionally. I mean, she's amazing. And uh, again, when it comes to like uh, just kind of going a bit more into the, the, the aspects of you know, obviously you practice, and then when you perform, well, like when you first started, for example, because you found you know work quite fast, mm-hmm. like. Um, in that situation, were you traveling a lot? Does it require a lot of traveling? Um, Is it mostly the same venues? Or? Yeah, so for some people, it, uh, it depends on what sort of level you are mm-hmm. in the career. For me, I didn't travel that much. Those first four years, I was only in Florida. Mm-hmm. Um, I traveled within Florida, but I was only in Florida. Um, and I got work by word of mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, I did a couple of competitions as well. Competitions is another route, and I will do that again here. Um, it's another way to put yourself out there without having to audition because it's like a legit performance. There's an audience. You never know who's in the audience. Some of the competitions, it's like major people in the audience looking for a new talent. And so um, I, I did do a couple of competitions, and that's how I got work as well. Okay, awesome. And then yeah. when you go, like, for example, I, to be honest with you, I've, I've never been to an opera show. Exactly. Travesty. I know. That's so, ridiculous. Okay. So I was gonna say, like, I gotta, you know, I gotta come see one of these yes. shows. Yes. Okay. So, um, what is Deutsche Oper doing? Because you're only here for the summer. It's too bad, man. Otello's going on right now. Right. The last show is actually Thursday, but it's amazing. Um, my friend Rusty is in the title role, and he's. Yeah, I'd love to check it out. Like, I, to be honest, I haven't had a chance to kind of go. Th- Again, it's like comes out of. It's, I, I haven't really had that much interaction with it, so I'm like, okay, when to go, when to, you know, most, like I said, I do spend a lot of evenings out on comedy shows. Yeah. So we get a couple of guys every now and then. Just, yeah. Not <laughs> a couple of guys every now and then doing opera. <laughs> but, you know, they're like the run of the mill. <laughs> right, right. That's funny. Um, yeah, I mean, here it's like no excuse because it's so much cheaper. In the States, it's, mm-hmm. it's very expensive to go to the opera. And get a decent seat, but here the houses are so much smaller. Like I was there, I went to Otello this past Friday, um, at Deutsche Oper, and I was literally in the last row of the last balcony, the top balcony, and it was a fine, it was a fine seat, and it cost me like twenty five euros. Really? Yeah. Okay, it's super affordable. That's again, yeah, I, I have no idea. Expensive. How much does it cost in the U.S. For that seat, I mean, sometimes you can get sort of a rush ticket mm-hmm. for $25, but it's a shit seat. Right. Um, there's like a, a pillar in front of you or something. And um, for the seat that I got at Deutsche Oper, it's about the same distance as like first balcony, center first balcony mm-hmm. in like a big opera house, like Chicago Lyric. Um, and I, it would have cost me upwards of 150 bucks. Right. So. Okay, so much like more expensive. Much more expensive right. because our... In the States, the opera companies um, are not subsidized by the government at all. Which is the case here. Which is the case here. Is that um, all over Europe or just Germany? It's Germany. Right. Yeah. Some, Austria, some, um, but Germany, almost all the city houses are subsidized. Okay. Um, whereas in the States, like 50, sometimes upwards of 70% of their budget is from 
outside donations, like personal donations from people, from foundations. And different kind like of that. hard lovers and not lovers. Completely lover. different. Yeah, awesome. And uh, in terms of like, so for example, you know, the, one of the, you might have seen like a bit of a, uh, do you follow a lot of comedy from the US? Are you, are you kind of in the community? No. Okay. So, like, uh, no. <laughs> that's, that's, that's <laughs> I was about to say, well, maybe no. <laughs> I was going to say, again, it's interesting because, you know, like your opera world and my comedy world, they haven't really interacted in any way, but like we get the chance to kind yeah, of share some info cool. here. So, you know, comedy has like really been uh, undergoing a massive boom recently. And one of the reasons, at least in my theory, is you know, a lot of Netflix specials, Netflix has been expanding yeah. uh, worldwide. Yeah. And one of the reasons for that is because the production cost for a stand-up comedy show like super low, right? You get a guy, you get a you get yeah. a room, you get a guy with a mic, and he's like, "Hey guys, what's the deal with potatoes?" You know, <laughs> you know, one potato, two potato. Um, so as far as like the production companies like Amazon Prime or like yeah. Netflix or Hulu are concerned, for them, if you want to create like an original series, like uh, let's say you know Breaking Bad, mm-hmm. you know it can cost up to a million dollars per episode, even more. Like Game of Thrones, right. like ten million dollars. But for a stand-up comedy special, yeah, that's how much it costs because there's a lot of people involved. There's a lot of you know yeah. props, yeah. but for a comedy special, basically what happens is you have one hour of content, you get one room, a guy with a mic, you sell tickets, and you, maybe you spend like 30 to 50K, right? Yeah. Uh, and in that situation, super low production cost, right? Yeah. So what that means is you can start dishing them out, and you can start doing them like, you know, this one's for like the, this particular subsegment of the population, this one's for like, you know, so that's why you have like quite a lot of diversity within the stand-up at the moment. And that is, you know, what? That's so true, because I just saw Ellen's thing mm-hmm. on um, Netflix, and just last night I was watching, like, a Trevor Noah thing. Exactly. So and I saw one of the sites has one. I guess maybe I know a little bit. Yeah, but. so you, you have some knowledge of it. And, and, of course, basically, and then, you know, each kind of, like, uh, they, they, they usually they cater to different kind of like, sub-segments of the population, right? So, you know, Trevor Noah, South Africa, and maybe yeah. a lot of people from South Africa will get, the, will get a Netflix subscription, which is, like, 10 to 15 oh, euros, to see Trevor Noah. And then the way that, you know, the kind of user behavior works is they'll forget to cancel it. So they're right. just stuck and they're going to pay and pay over and over, right? Uh, you know, basically, people that are fans of Ellen are going to go get Netflix to watch Ellen. Right. Some of them that are, be- are going to be fans of, like, Hassan Minaj or, like, Ali Wong. Uh, oh, Ali Wong! I haven't seen exactly. her special, but and it's just she's got movie. two specials and, okay. you know, basically, obviously, she's massive with the, uh, the Asian sub-segment right. pop- uh, population, right? Yeah. So it's growing in that direction. There's another guy called Mo Amr now, who like is more for like the uh, the Muslim part of America, and you know obviously that kind of like trickles down to like the Muslim population in like Oman or like you know oh, other areas. Interesting. So I didn't people, even think about that. So people get subscriptions to watch that, right? Uh, so like for them, it works much cheaper than like producing original content sure. like House of Cards, or whatever. Yeah. So that's why it's growing, growing quite a lot. Uh, so I'm ho- there's no Eastern European comedian out there, so uh, oh, Netflix, hey. uh, <laughs> the market's ready. Uh, so that's kind of how it's grown. So from that perspective, like because the production costs are very low there, I wanted to ask, like with regards to opera, how did the production cost oh. there? Um, so they're different levels, probably the same as in comedy. So at a high level, if you go to an, a production at Deutsche Opera, it's going to be oh, very expensive because mm-hmm. you have. 60 chorus members, Otello specifically, there's a children's choir, there's all of the orchestra, mm-hmm. there's the stagehands, props, costumes, wig makers, like super expensive. Mm. Um, that said, you could go and, you know, the, the sort of grunge opera, I don't know what you call it, I don't know what you call it, um, 
street opera, I don't know what you call it, um, here in Berlin, um, we call it storefront opera mm -hmm. in Chicago, but it's like smaller. So like I produce multiple operas right. in a coffee shop and it's like, you know, maybe it costs me 600 bucks. In a coffee because, shop. Yeah. So we did La Boheme, um, actually two years in a row we did La Boheme in mm -hmm. this coffee shop mm -hmm. in Chicago, Pilsen. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, like I said, I may have spent, maybe it was about a thousand by the time I paid it, all of the singers and the pianist and the props and stuff. Um, but it was very well received. We included dinner with the show and it was sold out for like three nights straight. So like you can do good opera mm -hmm. with very little money. Right. Um, but. So you need, what do you need? Do you, do you need a mic? Or do you just, your voice no, is powerful enough? Is, kind of, no, okay. so in opera you don't use mics. Right. Unless you're, like, you're outside, um, sometimes they'll use mics. There are a couple of places, even in Germany I've heard, um, there are a couple of theaters who might hire singers um, based on their looks or something mm -hmm. like that, and they don't really have the vocal chops and they'll use microphones. That's mm -hmm. super faux pas, mm -hmm. like if you see, if you're in an opera house and uh, you see singers using mics, like, and it's not a musical, it's a, like a legit opera and they're using mics, it's sort of like, what the hell is happening, you know what I mean? It's like not, it's, it's very faux pas. Um, that said, um, sometimes you will see them, but for the most part, we don't use mics. Okay, uh, and because the, the reason why I'm asking that, and this maybe might sound a bit kind of like, you know, we do a lot of the, the reason why the English scene has grown here in Berlin is because people want to get more stage time because that's how you get better by performing more sure. and more. So we kind of just do it in random bars. So um, do you need acoustics yeah. for it? I mean, acoustics are preferable, right. but I mean, I've I've done an opera in like a ho horrible spaces, like in a fully carpeted the wall. It seems like the walls are carpeted, like dungeon room in a hotel, um, where you sing and it's just like you're singing into a pillow. Because Berlin has like a lot of open mics, right? Mm -hmm. So this might sound crazy, but have you ever thought about putting like an opera open mic? Where you get different kind of opera people to come in like different like venues to just give. Interesting. Like without without a set list or anything, just, just like. People show up and they opera, I guess. Interesting. Um, I, know, I know, okay, so I know at least one guy that used to be an opera, mm -hmm. opera singer and he's a comedian now. Hilarious. <laughs> he's uh, oh, I, I gotta say he's, he's just started he's just started on comedy and he's got a lot of he's got a lot of foreskin jokes. <laughs> I can introduce you to him if you want. Sure, uh, why not? He's uh, he's, he's, he's this guy from Israel. Uh, and I mean, you know, Berlin is such a crazy place that why wouldn't there be an opera open mic? Yeah. Right? Well it's interesting. So there was something kind of similar to that. Um, in Atlanta, so there's an organization, it's a global organization called Opera on Tap. There's actually a chapter here in Berlin. Um, and usually, um, you get singers together and you create a program and then you present it in a space like a bar or whatever, but it's like a program that you practice and then you present the program. In Atlanta, it's more like what you're saying, which is like, come one, come all, if you're an opera singer, come sing. Um, and so in one way, I think it's great mm -hmm. to give singers that experience. Um, in another way, um, which is the more prevalent part of me, um, I think that if people, like if you've never, because I'm also a jazz head, right? Mm -hmm. So if you think about going to a jam session and, and it, it's shit, right? Mm -hmm. It's not good. 
but someone who doesn't know that it's not good goes in and also thinks it's not good, but they don't realize that it's just like a jam session. Right, right, right. Whoever's that's, up there. So it. then they leave thinking, oh, I hate jazz, but mm -hmm. really they hate that shit that they just heard. Yeah, so it's yeah, not yeah. that they hate jazz. And so I sort of feel that way about opera. I would hate to have an open mic and just have a bunch of random opera singers come in and sing and have an audience that's never give, heard give opera. Give them a wrong impression. And think that it's bad mm. because they had a bad, a bad experience. Now, if you go see Bowen at the Met and you don't like it, do you not like the show? Do you mm. not like opera? Do you not like the singers? It doesn't mean that you do. I mean, mm -hmm. so I feel like people are just, all people, not myself included, are just really impressionable. Right. And so I would hate to put on something and have like, bad singing happen and then people have a... I think if you manage the expectations of the people by having like an MC that lets them know this is an open mic, we're figuring stuff out. But again, it doesn't even have to be an open mic. We yeah, can just yeah. kind of do it as a as a, an event. Because, you know, I think that's the kind of stuff that could easily go viral. You know? Really? You're I giving mean, me a thought. You're giving me food for thought. Do you know what I mean? Because like, yeah. again, you want to... you. People like, the comedy is all about contrast, right? Because mm -hmm. for example, when you do comedy, you have to kind of get somebody, the premise is about getting them to think in a particular direction. Mm -hmm. And afterwards, the punchline is supposed to be surprise and like a, a, a kind of like a going away from that kind of like um, priming, as mm -hmm. we call it. So in this situation, if you take opera, which would be normally, would happen in a, you know, the very kind of like... Uh, Grand setting. I was going to say bougie. <laughs> <laughs> is that no. a, I mean, yeah, is that, a lot of people associate opera with bougie. But it's not, it's not, it doesn't have to be. You have like, because basically, you know, this weekend we had the Neukong 48. You know what it is? It was like 48 hours of performance of Strauss Neukong. Oh, I wish I had known about it. Uh, it happens every year and I got to wait for next year now. Okay. But the idea is we went to this co-working space and then they had like a piano, they had like a, Guitar, electric guitar guy that was doing uh, spoken word poetry and electric guitar. Oh, so he was playing the guitar and then spoken word poetry. And yeah. then we had like a piano dude and like a like an improv kind of group that was like dancing. Um, so I wish you could have met before and we could probably yeah. introduce you to that uh, venue. It would have been awesome. It. That's fine. There's gonna be yeah. plenty of opportunities, yeah. right? But the idea is, you know, combining you know two worlds, right, into like something that yeah. the, the result might be something super super awesome, mm -hmm. right? So uh, if you ever need like an introduction to like a venue or a bar, I could definitely recommend some of the places where we do comedy. Okay. Might be good, good to check them out. I'm think about this. Yeah, you gotta, you know, broaden, you know, the yeah, level of energy. percolating. You know, you gotta like sniff around. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Perhaps I've been too sort of narrow-minded. Interesting. Because, uh, you know, again, like for, at least for the way I think about comedy is, I always try to encourage people to jump on open mics. Because the more people there are in the open mic scene, faster the scene grows, yeah. the more they bring people in and it means just like, it just means that I can become bigger, I can grow the scene, so mm -hmm. it's not about like me being the number one guy in the scene, it's fine, it's, we have like, right. you know, it's, uh, usually I used to work for startups for a little while, the idea is like, you can have 100% of like a pie that's two kilos, but you can have 1% of a pie that's two million mm -hmm. tons, right? Right. So, might be something there. Uh, Interesting, I like that analogy. But uh, going with regards to like just uh, trying to understand a bit more about so the production costs sounds like it might be able to vary from like very expensive to like very oh, yeah. low budget, right? Totally. I mean, I could do an opera in this tiny room. You want to give it a go? I, I don't know if the mic can handle no, it. No, no, yeah, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm saying, you know, like if you wanted to have an, an audience that just are the people who are standing out there, like you probably could do a really cool opera. 
Yeah, and that's, you know, why not? Because, and you know, one of the things that, I, one of the challenges for me as a comedian is relatively, the problem is in Europe, we don't really have a lot of uh, career progression for comedy. It's not as straightforward mm. as it is in the U.S., right? Because in the U.S., let's say you're doing comedy in New York, you go to comedy in L.A., what you can do is basically, you know, your career progression, you go on corner, right? Mm. You go on, like, the, the daily show, like Trevor yeah. Noah, and yeah. then you start maybe writing for TV, maybe start writing a sitcom, yeah. and doing tours around, like, the country, right? Do they have here, um, you know, you know how like in Chicago, there's, uh, people are gonna rave me for this. There's a, there's a troupe or something that they do a lot of improv. So, so that's two different city. So that's two different things. So you, you have improv comedy. So there's a comedy cafe that focuses more on improv and the stand-up comedy is scripted comedy. Ah, uh, okay. So whenever I go on stage, it's not, um, it's very rarely will I kind of go away from the script. So, you know. I start off like my stories, hey guys, yeah, one potato, two potato, am I right? Mm -hmm. And they're like, hmm, <laughs> that one's a thinker. <laughs> Got it, okay. Because um, I know a lot of people went that route, like a lot of people like on SNL and stuff, which yeah. is scripted, yeah. went through like a second city kind of thing. Yeah. Like when you're talking about progression. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So like SNL is like a kind of career progression for, you know, a lot of the people that came out of there that are being stand-up comedians, started hosting their own late night shows, mm -hmm. or they started doing like... Uh, uh, like I think Pete Davidson is a good example, or no, uh, Jamie, uh, John Oliver. John Oliver used to be on. Uh, he does. He does like uh, this satirical show on uh, HBO called Last Week Tonight. Oh, okay. And you know, talks about different kind of stuff. Uh, who else would it be like a good example from Saturday Night Live? That uh, Seth Meyers. Seth Meyers, Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, Jimmy Fallon. They were all on, like Saturday Night, yeah. Night Live. So then now they're doing hosting. Right. But for example, that's that's kind of like the the improv career path, I guess. Got but then it. you have like let's say Dave Chappelle. Ah, I see. Dave Chappelle yeah. is a straight up stand up comedian. He's a yeah. club comedian, and then he went out and doing like Chappelle show, yeah. and uh, that's been the career progression in that direction. Whereas because Europe does doesn't yet have a cohesive like English mm. uh, media kind of like channel or like scene, the only kind of available uh, avenue for career progression is like either touring. Uh, where you have to kind of set up your own tours because there's no particular agency or uh, organization that kind of sets up tours for English comedians. Or you have to rely on YouTube or you know just the internet, mm -hmm. which is one of the reasons why I'm doing the podcast. I'm trying to create some more video content for YouTube. Sure. So I'm thinking if you're in Berlin with regards to the context of like a career progression, you might have to consider non-traditional yeah. avenues for like getting exposure. So maybe yeah, maybe a YouTube channel and kind of filming different kind of shows and Interesting. and setting up your own. Thanks you know. for all this career advice. This is great. No, that's fine. I used to <laughs> actually, uh, I used to work. So I lived in Japan for like three years. Oh, and that's I, cool. I used to work as like a headhunter there. Oh. So a lot of times I would basically talk to people about their careers. Yeah. But I've never done it in the context of like arts and opera. Yeah. So yeah, I hope that's oh, fascinating. And so then you also worked in startups. Yeah, so then I moved to Singapore and I was working in sales and for some startups there and in Estonia. Because uh, recruitment is basically, and even like fundraising, uh, which I'd like to go into as well, is it's a sales job, right? Oh, a thousand percent. But yeah. a lot, it's, you know, I know a lot of people who went from sales to fundraising. Some of them are great and some of them like totally didn't last because mm -hmm. it's, it, it takes more patience. It, it's, it's, right? very, it's very grit oriented, right? It's grit oriented, but with sales, it's very transactional, mm -hmm. whereas with fundraising, it's totally about relationship. I mean, it sales needs relationship too, yeah. but it's like when you're asking somebody to buy something that they need, mm -hmm. maybe even that they don't need and just want, it's still they're getting something for it. Mm -hmm. 
fundraising is just like give me the money that you right. worked really hard right. for and maybe your heart will feel good because <laughs> I, I actually that's one thing i want to talk about as well because like i think now from my when i was looking at the comment i was like you know, i have all these sales skills i can probably set up shows and do all the yeah. stuff myself so it's combining two sets of different skills like comedy and, and totally. you know and like sales into trying to build a career in comedy right yeah so for example for yourself i would suggest kind of doing something mm-hmm. along those lines as well and on that note like maybe would you like give a bit more info about like the fundraising kind of like activities that you were in because it might be interesting for people as well to know. sure um so gosh i so i have something called um i'm a certified fundraising executive the cfre and so that just means that I have learned or studied or done every aspect within fundraising. And uh, the only thing I haven't gotten really paid to do is planned giving, which is when you get people. Um, I've gotten a couple of planned gifts, but I haven't worked specifically in getting people planned to gifts? planned giving. So right. it's giving through your IRA, giving, right. um, writing us into your will, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff, like stuff that we get sort of later on, mostly, that's mostly what it is. Um, So most of my career, I was working in um, what we call annual fund giving, which is um, sort of the bread and butter. Mm -hmm. That's your unrestricted giving. So you could say you want to give me $5,000. You can give me $5,000 and say, hey, I trust you to do what's best for the organization with this $5,000. Or you can say, here's $5,000. I want you only to give it to people from Romania who make less than $15,000. And so the organization can only do that with that $5,000, even if they need to pay their light bill. And so the, the annual fund is like supremely important to any organization. So I totally have a passion for it. Um, and so everything about annual fund from major gifts within the annual fund and a major gift is the dollar amount varies from organization to organization. But a major gift is usually something that's done like $100,000 over five years. Mm-hmm. Um, it could also be just like one $50,000 gift. Um, sometimes a lot of major gifts are not annual fund though. Most of them are sort of restricted giving like the, the second example that I just gave. Um, so everything in those, everything from major gifts, which is when you really sort of have to sit down with the person, really build a relationship to... Um, broader based giving so email and mail acquisition and telephone and all of that stuff um and you know all of the admin stuff i've run teams and i've managed events galas and grandparents days and so everything in between. what kind of causes were you guys fundraising for um so i started my career in higher education at northwestern university in chicago um and so there i was on a team, um, the, a central team where I only dealt with people who gave $5 million or more. And anybody, yeah, Northwestern has a huge budget, huge. Um, it's a lot of money. It's a lot. I mean, I remember the first time I got a handwritten check for $2 million and the donor calls me up and she's like, Hey Bryn, I left, I left a check on your desk. Did you get it? She just left it on my desk. Did you get it? And I was like, you mean this, this handwritten check for $2 million? Yeah, got it. Um, That's but, then you, but then you get like totally jaded and it's just like, she only gave $2 million. She totally could have given us 10 You know what I mean? You get totally jaded. Wow. Um, 
But yeah, so then in that situation, yeah. just to kind of pause there for a second, like, yeah. what kind of background do these people have? Are they just like oh, private individuals, organizations? Um, or? Mostly individuals. Well, in my job, it was mostly individuals. Um, <clears throat> and it was, I mean, it sort of ran, ran the gamut. Some of them were just like legacy people who their parents, their grandparents had a lot of money and they just came into it. Some of them um, started companies that went really big. Some of them, uh, you know, were at or CEOs at really huge companies. So it really, it sort of ran the gamut. Um, yeah, there's no partic one particular kind of person. Um, so yeah, so higher education, everything from medicine, the medical school, the law school, the music school, whatever, um, including annual giving. And then I worked at a tiny, so went from that, raising like, you know, $300 million a year, to a, million. oh, easy, easy, um, to a very small private Montessori school, mm -hmm. um, where I was, you know, hard pressed to raise 300,000 right. a year. And so, um, you know, it was really helpful to have two, those two very vastly different experiences because raising $300 million at an organization like Northwestern is not different from raising $300,000 from an organization like near North Montessori School, um, but it's just like I traded in huge galas for tiny galas, mm -hmm. and I was, you know, having daddy-daughter dances instead of, you know, fancy lunches. Right. Um, but it's still, at the end of the day, about that personal connection. Um, and then after that, I went to a YMCA, which is, you know, what YMCA is? Uh, it's a, I, I don't know song. Oh, <laughs> yes, it's a huge organization in the States. Um, it's called, what is, it's going to be horrible, YMCA, the Young Men's Something Association. Um, but cultural anyway, Association? I don't think it's cultural collegiate, maybe. I don't know. I actually don't know. It's horrible that I don't know. That's fine. Um, but anyway, it's an organization that there, there are branches all around the U.S. and they help their communities through education, through um, fitness, through um, um, leadership programs for kids and like all that kind of stuff. And so they're really, really great. And um, so I worked at, a, so it's a slightly bigger budget than the Montessori school. Um, so it was more social service than education. And then I ended up at Atlanta Symphony Orchestra, which is, you know, a lot different kind of fundraising mm -hmm. um, from either any of the other kind of fundraising that I did. I think mostly because one, again, in the um, in the states, the arts are not government funded, and so like every single year, you're really, really pinch and pennies to get to get to your budget. Mm -hmm. um, and an organization like a symphony, um, so different from an organization like a theater, because mm -hmm. you have musicians to pay there's a contract you have to pay them no matter what um, you can't just like if you're at a theater company and you realize you're going to be off budget by however much you can sort of tweak your season and like maybe have shows that with less right. people or whatever you can't do that with an, an orchestra so yeah but you know but now I can I mean I can you can go into any kind of organization and fundraise the principles are the same right anywhere. right and um, what's kind of like the biggest, the biggest challenge there? Like just because like, you know, with sales, you have a product, you have a value proposition. This is what's going to be the value. And what's the value here is just like emotional. Yeah, mostly. Um, I would say the challenge in in fund 
The challenge in fundraising, um, especially for organizations, the social service organizations, I would say are the most challenging because there's not a built-in um, donor base. Mm -hmm. So like with schools, at least you have your alumni, you have your alumni parents, you have current students, you have professors or whatever. Even with an orchestra or something in the arts, you have your audience, you have, you know, philanthropists in the community, but with social service, you just are really trying to just like find out who likes helping people. (laughs) You know, like you don't have a a built-in sort of automatic donor base to even start fundraising. So I would say that that's the most challenge to me, that's the most challenging. Right, okay. And then basically you, because you come back to like the the arts, as it were, like for this fundraising path, mm-hmm. like you gotta have to get in there. Yeah. Fast. So how long did it take you to kind of like, you know, come to terms with the fact that you were going to do this full time and move to Berlin? And Oh, it was fast. I mean, over, over the course of about nine, um, my heart had been hurting for a while. Um, and I would say starting, I made the decision in October, I would say about like May-ish is when I really sort of, really sort of clicked for me, um, that I needed to make a change because I was supposed to come to Italy for, to study with, um, Delia for like, she does this week long thing that I'm going to in August and I was supposed to do that. And then I ended up having to be at work. I had to cancel doing that and work during that time. Um, so I found out I was going to have to do that in May and I was just like, holy shit, like I've given you everything. Mm-hmm. I just want one week off and right. I can't have it. And I was that, I was really, really frustrated. And so, um, but between then and when she took my hand in her, or my face in her hands, um, after I got back from Chicago, after she did that, it was about three weeks and I put in my notice and Boom. I left a month later. Okay, awesome. Well, yeah. it's pretty, pretty crazy times. Yeah, yeah. Who knows what's going to happen? I mean, that's, but at like least I, said, I will have tried. Yeah, the idea is, yeah, I completely, you know, we would have tried. Because like, I'm yeah. in the situation as well, right? And, try. and, you know, the thing is, like, you kind of figure stuff out as you go. And, you know, as long as you keep an open mind, then, you know, try different exactly. things. Exactly, exactly. It's a kind of uncharted territory, right? It is. But I'm, you know... Opera is definitely what I want to do. Um, it's a piece of what I want to do. But the other reason I wanted to move here is because I have so, like, I want to do so many things. Mm-hmm. And in the States, it's like if you're an opera singer and you want to do something else on top of that, that people look at you like you're not really dedicated mm-hmm. and like you're never going to make it because you have to be totally focused on opera. But I really want to do voiceover work. I started doing that here. Right. Um, I'm up for a job where I'll be like an online trainer mm-hmm. for like an organization and like do their training videos. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to act a little bit. I want to, I sing jazz. I want to get into the jazz mm-hmm. scene. So I just want to be, like you said, open right. to all the possibilities. I'm not even, I'm not even planning to audition for anything with opera until next year mm-hmm. so i have all of the rest of this year to just like do something else play around mix it yeah. yeah that's how you create that's how creates new things come from like merging two existing kind of professions or yeah. like different passions into something new so yeah i mean looking forward to see how things develop for you yeah right? thanks thanks like, uh, i'm working hard polishing off these areas so that the polishing off these areas yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, i could really <laughs> I'm out there trying to write those thick jokes. <laughs> it's not easy. <laughs> Every day is a struggle, you know. <laughs> uh, it's uh, but anyway, a lot of the jokes that I kind of do are like it's just like I try to do like a lot. Of-
lot of cultural jokes because mm-hmm. uh, I try to like you know introduce people to the life who don't know much about Romania, right? So right. I try to talk about about the culture, try to think about talk a bit about like some of the traditions and do it in a in a, in a funny way, right? Um, and yeah, so far it's been working well because I think people and a majority of people that come to the shows tend to be from Eastern European descent. Okay. Like, it's, I think they find it like they relate to the material quite a lot, and they're like, "Oh, okay, it's, it's guy kind of this guy's kind of like me, and he's doing this." Like, mm-hmm. it's, Let's do it. That, that yeah. can be done, yeah. So it's been pretty, it's been pretty cool. Uh, we've got shows like happening every uh, usually, usually every night. So if you ever want to check out some of the shows that we do, yeah, uh, more than happy because I would love to kind of go for one of your shows and see, or like one of the one of the offers that you recommend. Oh yeah, you definitely should. Yeah, and I'll, I'll try to get some more uh, more details off you after we finish the recording. Okay, sounds good. Uh, but usually I try to keep the podcast from like 40 to 50 minutes. Uh, so I think we're kind of reaching that particular okay. point now. So I just wanted to ask, like if people wanted to follow you or learn more about the things that you do, where can they Oh, like sure. You? So I have a website. It's mm-hmm. com. Okay. And then Brenda Marie Turner is also my handle on Instagram. Okay, Brenda Marie Turner, yeah? Yeah. So I'll definitely kind of follow you there. Uh, and performances, do you have anything lined up or do you want to see you? Um, I don't know. I mean, I'm going to be on a tour in Spain in July, but you can't go to that. Um, mm-hmm. And I, yeah, I don't have anything. How, how did you set up, set up the tour? Like, how did that come across? Um, so there are a lot of uh, black opera singers here. Mm-hmm. Well, not a lot, but there's some. And um, because gospel music is really big here, mm-hmm. which is not my forte, mm-hmm. but, you know, to people who don't know gospel, it's just like what I was saying. To people who don't know anything about gospel, they think I'm great. Um, so gospel is big here, and so I've met a couple of people through that scene, mm-hmm. and the people I'm working with in Spain um, are people who are operatic singers who mm-hmm. sing like some gospel-y stuff. So we're doing like some old-school gospel and also some um, Black American slave songs, mm-hmm. which some people call spirituals. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I don't know, he works with a guy who asked him to put together a quartet. So it's a quartet of singers and a pianist. Gotcha. And how, how long is the tour? How many cities? Um, I don't, I know, I know that I'm going to be gone for five days. Okay. I don't know anything else. Okay. So it's going to be, I, I, I mean, and I if it's you, in Spain and I, I don't. And if you want to do like, uh, like I said, any performances, if you want to set up your own shows, again, I can recommend you a couple of venues to try them out. Uh, I I think that would actually be great because like I mentioned I'm not going to be doing any auditions until mm-hmm. next year and so I'm trying to figure out I still want to be singing yes, um, yes and performing and so that's actually great I, I already have like a couple of venues in mind that you can do they can okay. they can basically have like fifty to sixty people that would be awesome and just kind of like you know put it on there like usually we do donation shows we have donations mm-hmm. at the end maybe we can put like a ticket price you can we can experiment. Yeah. And see where it goes from there. But like, there's a lot of opportunity, and you know, this person is a very supportive artist. So. Yeah, it, I mean, that's why I'm here. That's and, awesome. And yeah, okay, well, in that sense, uh, what can I say? Thank you very much for being on the Thank podcast. Thank you, how fun. Uh, yeah, and uh, guys, if you want to check out her stuff, like, you're going to put the notes in the Instagram and uh, Facebook. Thanks again, thanks again once more, and uh, looking forward to seeing your show. Thank you so Thank you. much. Hey, thanks a lot for taking the time to listen to this episode. Uh, If you'd like to keep up to date with some of the uh, new podcasts or shows that I'm doing, you can sign up to my mailing list at dragushcomedy.com. You can also find me on Instagram at dragushcomedy. Thanks a lot once again for tuning in and catch you guys on the next podcast.